We turn now to God's Word and reflection upon its teaching. This morning, during our worship service, we looked at Christ's first letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He is called to the church in Ephesus not to forsake their first love. Tonight, though the bulletin is mistaken and it's not the fault of the church secretary, the bulletin secretary, uh, the blame all lies with me, it says that we're going to speak on the theme Christ's word to the church, it should say, and it's, there are two mistakes. It's not the church in Thyatira, it's the church in Smyrna. And the word Christ speaks to that church, uh, though we could try to do something with be faith even unto death, uh, it was my intention, but I didn't give it to the secretary correct, correctly, to uh, give the, the theme as be faithful even unto death. And so we're going to read that letter, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 8, found in the Pew Bibles on page 1914, page 1914. Let's listen together now to this word which Christ speaks to us. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so you can see it wasn't be faith. Verse 6, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you, says Christ, the crown of life. May the Lord bless our reading and hearing of his word this evening. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want to repeat too much of what I said this morning, but as was said this morning, we have the privilege and the blessing tonight to receive a letter. Not any kind of letter, but penned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and conveyed to us by his servant, the Apostle John, as he was on the Isle of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus. And I said to you this morning, we're not in the custom these days of receiving letters, and it isn't often that when you receive a letter, it comes from someone to whom you must give your most urgent attention. Uh, sometimes preachers try in their introductions to emphasize not only this this a particularly interesting passage and topic that is before us this evening, but they try to captivate. Well, let me just say, if it doesn't captivate your ear to listen up, pay attention, give all appropriate consideration to... Christ himself, who is the first and the last, the ruler of the kings of the earth, who is dead but now lives, and who has all authority in heaven and on earth, 
that he should speak to the churches in seven letters. And I said to you this morning, it's no accident there are seven letters. I mean, there were more than seven churches. It's generally understood that the book of Revelation was likely written late in the first century, the last book of the New Testament canon. And so late in the first century, there are churches scattered all throughout the Roman Empire, as well as the region of Asia Minor. Why the Lord selects these seven, I cannot say. We're not told. But they're representative. They're typical. They are model churches. Their circumstances and challenges are our circumstances and challenges. And so you could just as well insert the words tonight to the angel, the messenger, the star who is in the grip of the risen Christ's right hand of the church in South Holland Specifically, the Cottage Grove Christian Reformed Church, right. Now, as I said this morning, uh, these letters all have a particular order and structure. So does this one. That's, though it's the one letter, I mentioned that this morning, that has nothing critical to say. It's only a word of commendation and encouragement. A sobering encouragement and commendation, to be sure, as we'll see, but no criticism, nothing but from first to last encouragement. But it begins with a very distinctive identification of the author. And it's different than the identification of the author. Same author, but differently described. And there's significance in that. That's the first thing I want us to notice very briefly. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Now, that's like our English idiom, from A to Z. It's not only the first things and the last things, never mind the middle things. It's all things are within his grip. Nothing transpires, nothing takes place in all the world and among all the nations without his will. He is the first and the last. In fact, you find that language already in chapter 1 at verse 17, where John says, When I saw him, that is Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. And now notice, I am the first and the last. And then similar words to the words he uses in this letter, I am the living one. Whereas I was dead, to use the expression of the Apostle Paul in one of his epistles, though I was crucified in weakness and I was pinned to an accursed tree, though I was mocked and despised, though I was judged to be an imposter when I called myself, revealed myself to be the Son of God, when it looked as though I were subject to the power of death itself, I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and ever. I have conquered death. I have removed its sting. I have overcome. I have vanquished sin, death, and hell. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and of Hades. 
Now we're going to see when we come just now to what Christ actually says to the church in Smyrna, how fitting, exactly suited to their need, are these words. Because they live in the fearful prospect of possibly being put to death for the testimony of Jesus. They live in a city, in a place and time, where they are weak. They appear by worldly standards to be poor and of no account. Their enemies are out to get them. They live in deadly peril. And so the Lord wants them to know the words that are spoken in this letter come to you in the name of him who is the first and the last. Nothing will transpire, nothing will take place whether in the present or in the future, that will steal them, strip them of the reality and comfort of knowing that they belong to this Christ, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. It's one of the great themes, by the way, of the book of Revelation. I preached a few weeks, months ago, I forget, you get to be my age, the months, weeks fly by, those familiar words in Revelation 20, that passage dealing with the millennium. What does it say about those whom John saw who had been beheaded, some of them, and who were uh, before the throne of God in heaven? He says, yet they lived, and they are not subject to the power and the fear of death. So that's the first thing. Keep that in mind as we look at what Christ specifically says in the way of encouragement to this church. Verse 9, I know your afflictions. Remember I said to you this morning when Christ speaks to his church, he speaks to a people with whom he is familiar. By the way, that's why a pastor or an elder who in Christ's name serves a congregation in whatever place, they cannot be the sort of people who are indifferent to and unaware of what's going on in the life of their congregation. And Christ is going to tell us what's going on in the life of this congregation in Smyrna. He says, I know of your afflictions, your sufferings, the trials that you are enduring because of your testimony and commitment to me. I know of your poverty. Now, we don't know exactly what the circumstance was of the congregation in Smyrna, but as we read on, it's quite possible that like the Hebrew Christians to whom the author of Hebrews wrote, uh, they were dispossessed. They were deprived of the freedom to carry out their particular calling and vocation in their business enterprises, in the marketplace, in the pursuit of taking care of their own needs and the needs of others. They perhaps were willing, even as the Hebrew Christians were willing, to suffer the loss of this world's possessions because they knew they had a lasting and an abiding richness in Christ. In fact, that's exactly what the Lord says. I know your afflictions, your trials, your sufferings, the persecution you're enduring for my name's sake, for my kingdom's sake, and I know of your consequent poverty. It didn't turn out for these people, like some preachers today tell you, it'll all turn up a bed of roses. 
Health and wealth is your inheritance in Christ in this world. If you haven't it, it's because of your lack of faith. No, in this church's case, it was because they were faithful that they were suffering. Isn't that what our Lord says in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, those who are slandered on my account. Speaking of slander, notice what he goes on to say. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Now that requires a little explanation. Uh, you may know that in the first century of the Christian era and the second century as well, and for some hundreds of years, the dominant empire, world power, was the ancient Roman Empire with its great emperors. And it so happens that it had become the state policy within the Roman Empire to provide the Jewish community, the synagogue, freedom of assembly. And they were even exempted from the requirement of worshiping at the temples that were erected to serve the god Rome or the gods, the emperors of Rome thought they were religious, quasi-deities. As a matter of fact, one thing we do know about the church in Smyrna is that it was a particularly fervent haven of what we might call patriotic love for the god and the gods of the Roman Empire. And they were jealous to insist that everyone join in the feast. They actually built in the city of Smyrna in 195 BC, that's some 300 years before this letter was written, a temple among many temples that dotted the landscape that was called Dea Roma. A feminine form of the noun meaning the god Rome. Now what was one of the most typical confessions of the Christian church concerning the Lord Jesus Christ? We have no kurios, no lord, no king, but him who is the king and ruler of the princes of the earth. And one of the practices at Dea Roma, that great temple, even visitors who would travel through the city, tourists perhaps, or on business, selling their wares, were required to participate, to do homage, to pay homage, to join in making sacrifice and bringing their gifts and acknowledging with their mouths that indeed the emperor, he is God. He is Lord. Now, I've got to go back to the Jewish community. One of the things the Jewish community had managed to succeed in doing was to get permission by way of state policy exemption from these requirements. Now, that suggests that what the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about here is there were among that community, and the Christian community, don't forget, in its early beginnings, emerged out of Judaism. The apostles preached in the synagogues and in every place. Read the book of Acts. The gospel comes first, as Paul says, to the Jews and then 
beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And among the Jewish people, there were many who believed. Think of Pentecost, some 3,000 in Jerusalem. Jews of the dispersion were brought to confess that Jesus is the promised Messiah and were gathered in and became living members of Christ's church. So for a season, the political authorities are not always that clever that they can sort these religious things out. Uh, the Christian community enjoyed a kind of protection under the umbrella of the protections afforded to the Jewish community. But as we often find, even in the book of Acts, and this is not an anti-Semitic comment, this is a historical observation about what was transpiring in, among other places, certainly in Smyrna, there were those of the Jewish community, the synagogue, that's why he calls it a synagogue of Satan. It's reminiscent of the words our Lord speaks in the Gospel of John. You're like, you are sons of the evil one, not of Abraham, because you oppose the one whom God has sent. You're like your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. There was a segment of the Jewish community that wanted to bring to the attention of the political authorities that these Christians are not of us. And so they are accused or declared by the Lord in this letter as slanderers. Those who are bringing accusation before the political authorities, the Roman authorities, the temple authorities, that these people do not enjoy and ought not to be granted protection against the requirements regarding the worship of Rome, the confessing of the name of the emperor as himself Lord of Lords, God of Gods. And he goes on to say, do not then be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, you have to be careful with the language there. He doesn't say, Christ doesn't say that in this context of their testimony to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and their impending suffering of persecution at the hands of the Roman authorities and the temple authorities, that all of them necessarily would suffer to the same degree. Or that all of them, some of you, he says, would be imprisoned. And yet he does say, it's a sobering word, that it would be so for some of them. Now you might ask, I was told one of the times I was here at Cottage Grove that some of you did a Bible study in the book of Revelation. So maybe I'm carrying coals to Newcastle. But why ten days? That seems like an odd. It's not a literal 10 days. It's like a period that is bounded within God's will. It's not indefinite. It won't last forever. It'll be a season. But you remember Daniel 1? When Nebuchadnezzar, the great opponent of God's people, sought to train Daniel and his three friends in his court and have them eat the king's meat, finest foods, be educated in the ways of the Babylonians and in the religious service and worship of their gods, how Daniel and his three friends refused. 
How long were they given to be tested, to see, ascertain whether being deprived, just eating vegetables, they weren't vegetable vegans, but they wouldn't eat the meats, and it wasn't because they didn't like the meat, it was because that meat was consecrated to the worship and the service of not the true and living God of Israel, but the false gods of the Babylonians. They were to be tested for what? Ten days. It's a reminder to them of that age-old conflict and circumstance often faced by the gathered, assembled people of God in any particular place, that it may well be that they'll be called to adjust, to compromise, to deny Christ's kingship, to go along and cooperate with practices in terms of worship and service that go against the grain of God's word. And so he wants to encourage them to be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now, you may be thinking to me, well, that's a rather sobering, not rather encouraging word for us. After all, in our circumstance, I think we could say as a, a general rule, we've enjoyed exceptional privileges. We live in a country that has a constitution, a bill of rights that permits free assembly, permits the free exercise by way of conscience of religious convictions. We have not experienced, most of us, we haven't even come close to having to suffer to the point, to use the language of the author of Hebrews, the same idea expressed here as well, uh, to the point of the shedding of blood. We read a few years ago of those Egyptian believers of the Coptic church who were marched to their death along the shores of the Mediterranean. What were they called upon to do? to deny Christ and to confess that Allah is the one only true and living God. All of them were beheaded. That's a shocking, horrific, so outside the sphere of our acquaintance as to be almost to us unimaginable. Now, I'm not here this evening to scare anyone, but I am here this evening to at least remind you that it may well be, it may well be the circumstance of some of us. We sometimes have small trials and testings. Perhaps our boss says you have to work at particular times on the Lord's Day and you're not going to get the job, you're not going to be promoted, you're not going to be applauded, you won't be employee of the month if you insist by way of religious conviction of gathering regularly on the Lord's Day for worship. We're even acquainted in our country with those who are in business, who are called upon at times to do things that compromise their conscience. I want to get into the politics, but a few years ago, you may recall the notorious case of a baker who was friends with the very customers who came to him and said, we want you to prepare this kind of cake for our wedding. And the baker, who was a Bible-believing Christian uh, had to say gently, as gently as he could, I'm not by reason of conscience able to do what you ask. You're not asking me to prepare a cake. You're asking me to prepare the kind of cake that celebrates something 
of which by reason of conscience I'm not able to approve. Now I could go on and say, speak of other things. I know that in the state of, of Illinois there have been some hospitals, some uh, medical personnel, doctors who have been inconvenienced or troubled or perhaps pressured to offer medical services that violate their conviction that all life is God-given and is precious in God's sight and is to be protected at every stage from conception onward. There are countries, even in the state country of Canada, where fellow brothers and sisters are in fear of saying things in worship or from the pulpit as it relates to issues pertaining much disputed human sexuality. I'll leave it very general because I'm afraid that in South Holland or in Illinois or in the United States I'll be listened to on the internet and they'll haul me off and imprison me as they were in danger there in Smyrna of being imprisoned but it's called hate speech and it's forbidden in the public square it's not allowed there are all kinds of ways I don't mean to be in any way cast it let's pray that that not be our case remember these are seven distinct churches so happens we're at the second letter and so we have to talk about this I can't ignore I gotta keep my finger on the text what Christ says about the circumstance faced by the church in Smyrna and it's not our circumstance I'm not suggesting that for one minute but I am asking raising and asking myself as well as you the question Do you understand the encouragement that the Lord is giving when he says you be faithful even in these horrific prospects that you're confronting in the city of Smyrna. Be faithful even to the point of death if God forbid that be your circumstance. For I will give you the crown of life that will never fade away. Now remember what I said about the one who is speaking. He knows wherever he speaks. He is not speaking outside of his own context and knowledge of what it is to face the prospect of death. And he assumed it willingly. He voluntarily, I have power, he said, to take it up. I have power to lay it down. But out of love for my sheep, I lay down my life for them. I die for them. And yet I live forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. It's very interesting how the Lord makes a promise to these beleaguered, afflicted, persecuted, tried and tested believers in Smyrna. He puts it this way at the end of verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Remember our Lord's words in the Gospels? Don't be afraid of the person who can destroy body, deprive you of this world's possessions. Rather, be afraid of him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. The second death 
that's used in Revelation 20 is not the death, the disillusion, the deprivation of life in this body. It's to be cast away into what in the book of Revelation is called later the lake of fire. The first death, physical death, cannot destroy, vanquish, defeat, steal away the true life of one who belongs to Christ in life and in death, and nothing is able to separate them from God's love for them in Christ Jesus. And so what he holds out to them, he's not a health and wealth preacher. I said that already. He doesn't say, no, you'll have no trouble. It'll never happen. It's not possible. I'll prevent it. No, what he says is, even if it happened, remember who I am. I died and have come to life again. I will give you, if you're faithful even to the point of death, the crown of life. And the one who overcomes will not be hurt, injured in the deadly injury that is the second death. It'll simply end your short life and pilgrimage in this world and be an entrance into that life without end in God's presence that awaits all of God's people. Now let me end this evening my meditation with these words of Polycarp. I don't know if you've ever read uh, any books of Christian martyrs. You've ever heard of the Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs? When I was a boy, have you heard of the book the Gates of, Through the Gates of Splendor, written by Elizabeth Elliot, wife, widow of Jim Elliot. I read it as a little boy. My parents insisted that we all read it. And in that book, she quotes Jim to say, he is no fool who is willing to lose what he cannot keep, life in this body, in order to gain what he cannot lose. Polycarp was a member of the Smyrna congregation. Christian tradition says that he was probably present when this letter first came to the church in the late first century, a young man of some 20-some years of age. At the age of 86, to be exact, on February 22, A.D. 156, some 60 years after this letter was written to the church in Smyrna. The congregation, brothers and sisters, having warned him and encouraged him to seek to hide outside the city, and he did. But he was captured and he was brought before the Roman governor, who in the name of Caesar called upon him to deny Christ and to confess that Caesar is Lord. Swear to us, said the governor, by the genius and the lordship of Caesar, and I will immediately release you. And he asked for a couple of days to pray. Came back and said he would not recant. The governor said, then you'll not die in the arena at the hands of men and of wild beasts. By the way, if you've ever been to Rome and you've seen the ruins of that arena, and then you go into the catacombs underneath, if you're a believer, your mind runs to the day when people like Polycarp and many, many others were being held for slaughter in the arena. 
What did Polycarp, member of this church, say? He, he apparently took to heart by God's spirit this letter. He said to the governor who threatened him with death at the stake, 86 years have I served Christ and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul responded, the wild beasts are ready. He says, bid them to be brought. Infuriated, the proconsul said, as you despise beasts, I give you one last opportunity, else I shall destroy you by fire. And we're told that Polycarp refused. He was even unwilling to be tied to the stake. And as the flames took his life, his body, he cried out, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, I thank you that you have thought me worthy to bear testimony to the Savior. May God grant in whatever circumstance, whether it be small or great, that when we are tested, if we should be tested, pray that we not be tested in this manner, but if we should be tested, we would understand what it means to belong to a Christ who says, I was dead, but I am now alive. Though you die in the body, you shall not die. You will be granted the crown of life that will never fade away. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would grant to us, by your Spirit, a readiness to be faithful, to remain steadfast, to hold on to what we confess regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, to be willing, if need be, for his name's sake, to suffer slander, persecution perhaps, affliction, inconvenience, impoverishment, to do it because we know him and we love him and we offer ourselves in service to him and him alone. We pray this for your people, not only in this place, but throughout all the world, some of whom even this day are confronted with the kind of trial that this congregation was undergoing to whom Christ speaks by way of this letter. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.